DiscerningHearts.com presents The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. For over 20 years, Dr. Bunsen has been active in the area of Catholic social communications and education, including writing, editing, and teaching on a variety of topics related to church history, the papacy, the saints, and Catholic culture. He is the faculty chair at the Catholic Distance University, a senior fellow of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, and the author or co-author of over 50 books, including the Encyclopedia of Catholic History and the best-selling biographies of St. Damien of Molokai and St. Kateri Tekakawitha. He also serves as a senior editor for the National Catholic Register and is a senior contributor to EWTN News. The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Dr. Bunsen, thank you for joining me. Wonderful to be with you again, Chris. We're going to be talking about a doctor of the church who probably is very intimidating to today's homilist. <laughs> he is. We're familiar, of course, with uh, St. John Chrysostom, uh, who was called the Golden Mouth. And, and here we're dealing with Peter Chrysologus, uh, whose name means the Golden Worded. And it's a reference to uh, his incredible abilities as a homilist, so much so that he has been given the title of the Doctor of Homilies. That tells you something. The, the, the beauty about St. Peter Chrysologus is that um, he's one of the greatest homilists in the history of the Church. Why? Because of his zeal, his skills in speaking, but because of the brevity and clarity of his teachings. And he was famous for keeping his homilies short to the point and perfectly organized because he was afraid of boring his congregation. I've heard it said from a pastor I know who is actually quite an extraordinary homilist in his own right that he said it's amazing what the Holy Spirit can do in five minutes. Yes, yes. And, and, and the Holy Spirit doesn't need an hour. No. And, and Peter's uh, the, the great example of that. And in the history of the church, I was mentioning St. John Chrysostom, who is renowned for his homilies, Ambrose of Milan, who is beloved for his homilies. We move farther along in, in church history. We have Francis de Sales. And we have a host of, of saints and theologians and popes who were great homilists. But Peter is the one who enjoys the title of Doctor of Homilies. Give us a sense of his time and place in history, as well as why he was chosen to be a doctor of the church. Yeah, well, he was declared a doctor of the church by Pope Benedict XIII uh, in 1729, which strikes some people as a fairly late time for uh, this to, to take place. The, the circumstances of uh, his appointment uh, were the fact that uh, in Europe itself, the church was dealing with the effects of the enlightenment, of uh, the sort of reduction of belief, of faith at a time when, for example, France was moving inexorably toward the French Revolution, and you had rationalism and skepticism and empiricism. And Peter is honored for his ability to distill, as we've been saying, the truths of the faith to a very concise way to penetrate sort of the fog of rationalism and empiricism, especially skepticism. So that's why he was named a doctor of the church when he was. And it's interesting that if we go 
back to when he lived. He, was, he lived from about 380 to around 450. Uh, two things were happening. Uh, much as uh, we discussed with uh, his contemporary, Pope Leo I the Great, the Western Empire, the Roman Empire in the West, was on its last legs. Uh, in fact, uh, during his lifetime, uh, Rome was sacked in 410, uh, and it was shortly after his death that Attila the Hun threatened Rome, and then Rome was sacked again, only five years or so after his death in 455, this time by the Vandals. So you have a sense of the collapse of the West, but at the same time, uh, the Church was also beset by ongoing heresies. In his lifetime, the Church continued to grapple with the, the heresy of Arianism, that had been refuted first at the Council of Nicaea. And then uh, you also have the Council of Ephesus, around 431, uh, that defended the true nature of Christ. And then you had the ongoing uh, crisis of Monophysitism uh, that uh, had as its leader, sort of the exemplar of it, uh, a priest named Eutyches, uh, who figured very prominently in the, the reign of Leo I. So, we had the heresies going on, and Peter stood as a great leader of the church in this, the, the Sea of Ravenna, and we, we'll talk more about that in a second. But he was trusted by Leo I, he was beloved in the church, and he stood steadfast against the heresies, especially that one by Eutyches, that called into question not Christ's divinity, which is the hallmark of the Arian controversy, the Arian heresy, but called into question Christ's humanity, which was the hallmark of monophysitism. So tell us, Dr. Bunsen, what is the definition of a fine homily? <laughs> well, as we've been saying, a, a, a fine homilist is somebody who is able to communicate uh, the teachings of the church to reflect on uh, Scripture, on the teachings of the church, but in a way that also inspires, that moves the congregation to holiness, that deepens in them a love for the faith, that instills in them a love for the sacraments, uh, but then who's able to do these things within the context of the liturgy, who sees a homily uh, within that context of worship, of proclamation. And that's quite a skill if you can master it. And I understood that rather profoundly in the same way that uh, someone like Ambrose of Milan did, uh, and also St. John Chrysostom did, uh, that you, you speak to your congregation, but within that specific setting, that liturgical setting of worship, of thanksgiving. It does sound like an awesome task. I would suppose that's why when we say someone is a gifted homilist. We have to really take that to heart and mean it. There must be a gift associated, a spiritual gift, that allows them to be able, the Holy Spirit, to pull everything together in that person's delivery. Yes. And Peter uh, earned the title of chrysologus, meaning, again, golden-worded, uh, traditionally uh, from a Roman empress, uh, a Christian Roman empress by the name of Gala Placidia. 
who heard his first homily after his appointment as Bishop of Ravenna, and that's something we need to talk about too, mm -hmm. and was so moved by his skills as a homilist, whose heart was so deeply touched that she said his words were like gold. And she subsequently went on to support and finance many of his building projects for churches and shrines uh, and helped him in his work as bishop. So what we're seeing just in this one rather powerful woman, Gala Placidia, the impact of a homily. And imagine the impact that it had on his congregation in Ravenna uh, at a time when you not only had the dangers of heresies in the church, but you had lingering paganism. The Roman civilization was very much in flux. Uh, the gradual Christianization of the empire was an ongoing project. And so one of the tasks for the bishops of the time was to live by example the faith, but also to proclaim the faith in such a way that it, it really did touch the hearts and minds of a population that was still wavering and, and still trying to understand this new faith. And clearly, Peter succeeded in both. Talk to us about the significance of Ravenna. When we look at Italy, we think of Rome, of course, as the, the great center of the world, you know, the Caput Mundi, the head of the world. And then, uh, with the decline of Roman strength in the West, uh, the political center, the, sort of the center of gravity, shifted north to Milan. But then, there was a the city of Ravenna, uh, and the eastern coast of Italy, along the boot. And that became a very prominent city. Why? Because the eastern Christians, the, the, the eastern empire, made it something of a political center. So it was there that uh, emperors lived, and uh, it became an important center for, for learning, for trade, for, for commerce, and for political life. So the sea became a rather prominent one. And uh, if you Think of uh, some of the great churches that are still there today that we visit in pilgrimages. We appreciate the amounts of money and attention that were paid to Ravenna uh, by the leaders of the East. And so for this brief amount of time, Ravenna became a very prominent city. And Peter, as its bishop, really helped to elevate uh, the spiritual vitality of the Christian community there. He had... Incredible teachings. I mean, that as you mentioned, some of the, the big heresies were still very much thriving, and yet he was able to bring down the teachings of the church and of the gospel in such a way that it, whether like little seeds that were able to germinate so, so richly in the hearts of those who heard those words. I think that's, that's very true. We go back to his very appointment, and... According to tradition, Cornelius, uh, bishop of the diocese of Imola, who baptized him and educated him and ordained him a deacon, understood uh, very clearly uh, the, the talents that he had and nurtured those and helped have him appointed first an archdeacon. And it is said that uh, he was sent as uh, a, a secretary of sorts to Rome during the process in which the, a new bishop of Ravenna was supposed to be named. He was not the candidate. But Pope Sixtus III 
appointed him instead, supposedly rejecting the candidate who had been initially chosen and, and presented to the Pope on the basis of a dream that Pope Sixtus beheld this young, relatively young man to be the, the Bishop of Ravenna in a vision of sorts, in a dream. And suddenly he looks up and sees as this secretary uh, accompanying this delegation is the very person that he was supposed to name, and he did so. The story, uh, possibly a, a pious legend, begins to give us a sense of what it was like for this extraordinary young man to begin preaching and proclaiming the faith. Peter was noted, as I said, for his short but remarkable homilies. He focused, as a good homilist should, on the texts of Scripture, and then he used those homilies to condemn heretical teachings such as Arianism and Monophysitism. But then he went into the explanations of the mysteries of the faith, and he talked about prayer, he talked about the Eucharist, he talked about the Incarnation, he talked about the Blessed Mother. We unfortunately do not have too many of his homilies that have survived. But one that does, I want to quote it just very briefly. He's talking about prayer, fasting, and mercy. And he says, there are three things, my brothers, by which faith stands firm, devotion remains constant, and virtue endures. They are prayer, fasting, and mercy. Prayer knocks the door. Fasting obtains. Mercy receives. Prayer, mercy, and fasting. These three are one, and they give life to each other. And then he goes on to explain how fasting is the soul of prayer. Mercy is the lifeblood of fasting. But let no one try to separate them. They cannot be separated. If you have only one of them or not all together, you have nothing. So if you pray, fast. If you fast, show mercy. It sounds a bit like uh, Pope Francis, doesn't it? It certainly does. I would also say that in his teachings, it's been handed down that he's very Christ-centered, very Christocentric. Yes, absolutely. He, he really focused on the Apostles' Creed, but again, as I was saying, the mystery of the Incarnation, mm -hmm. and encouraged at a time when this is somewhat unusual, the daily reception of the Eucharist. Mm. And he called on his flock to trust in God's loving mercy, but the mercy that came through Christ. We'll return in just a moment to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Help support this vital ministry. Discerning Hearts is a 100% listener-supported apostolate. Now through Labor Day, please prayerfully consider making a sacrificial gift to help us raise $40,000 to fund operating expenses for this truly life-changing Catholic programming and prayer. We recently received a generous grant to hire new employees to grow the apostolate, but we still have to fundraise those operating expenses which have significantly grown over time. The financial contributions of listeners like you enables us to continue this important ministry. As an independent, not-for-profit lay organization that is not affiliated with your diocese, our apostolate is 100% listener-supported. So again, between now and Labor Day, 
please visit discerninghearts.com and click the donate link found there or inside the free Discerning Hearts app to make your donation. Thanks and God bless. The Creed I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried, and rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. We now return to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. What would happen to him in this turbulent period? As uh, we've been talking, uh, the heresies of the era were a, a great struggle for almost all of the bishops, both in the East and in the West. And Peter, in his see at Ravenna, uh, fought both paganism, you've been talking, but also these heresies. He condemned uh, the, the priest Eutyches, uh, but he did so in a remarkable way. Coming out of this synod that was held in Constantinople that condemned the Eutyches for his heretical teachings in his proclamation uh, that effectively rejected the humanity of Christ, Eutyches looked desperately for support, especially from the Western bishops, uh, for his cause. And he sent different letters to different bishops. And one of the most important was he appealed to St. Peter Chrysologus uh, for support in his position. And St. Peter uh, wrote back to him in very gentle fashion, but very clear fashion, and urges the Eutyches, to a life of prayer. But he adds, though, that we exhort you in every respect, honorable brother, he said, to heed obediently what has been written by the Pope of the city of Rome. For blessed Peter, who lives and presides in his own see, provides the truth of faith to those who seek it. 
For we, by reason of our pursuit of peace and faith, cannot try cases on the faith without the consent of the bishop of the city of Rome. And who was the bishop at the time? But Leo I, the Great, who not only had great confidence in, in St. Peter Chrysologus, but was himself working so hard to establish, once again, to renew the position of papal primacy across the universal church. So we see in Peter three notable things. First, a gentle soul in how he wrote back to Eutyches. Second, he defends the true cheating, the teachings of the church. In other words, he's defending the, the truth of the church's teachings, but did so, in a, and again, in that gentle way. It's, it's a, this is a fraternal correction, not a battering down of a heretic, because he was clearly worried about the eternal life of Eutyches himself. But third, and this is, this is key to understanding the events that soon unfolded, he speaks vividly, eloquently about papal primacy, about the place, the rightful place of the Pope in the life of the church. At a time when in the East you had various patriarchs of Constantinople, of Alexandria, and even of Jerusalem, who were trying to resist papal primacy in part because they were worried that it might reduce the influence of their own patriarchates. What happened barely a year after Peter's death with the Council of Chalcedon in 451 that condemned the teachings of monophysitism and reaffirmed the authentic teachings of the church, but doing so with what was called the Tome of Leo, and that of concretized the rightful place of the Pope in the life of ecumenical councils. And the acts of that council preserved the text of that letter from St. Peter in response to Eutyches. So think of the significance of one of the great councils of the church taking a letter from just one bishop, in this case the bishop, or, or traditionally held to be Archbishop of Ravenna, and inserting it into the acta of that ecumenical council. It gives us a clue, an understanding of the eloquence of Peter, but also of the high reputation he had within the church. What comes across so strongly, too, is that gentle nature. As you have described him and his approach, he really is a good shepherd that, if alluding back to Pope Francis, as you mentioned him earlier, I mean, it he sounds as though he was a bishop who smelled like his flock. <laughs> Very much so. Uh, but somebody who is also profoundly respected. Uh, we know that uh, uh, the Roman emperor, Valentinian, uh, thought immensely of him. We also know that the empress Gala Placidia obviously had a high regard for him. We know that Pope St. Leo I the Great uh, revered him. And there is, a, in the mosaics of a church, uh, in Ravenna, San Giovanni Evangelista, a, a, a mosaic of St. Peter that places him uh, not by himself, but within a context of the different members of the imperial household, both East and West. That uh, is one of the highest honors that you could be given, especially as a bishop in the church. 
And yet, here was somebody who was very concerned with the spiritual welfare, not just of the emperors and empress, but of his flock, which is why he, he stressed the importance of homilies and the importance of clear teaching. I keep going back in my own mind, the, the teaching that you brought forward on prayer, prayer, fasting, almsgiving, and mm-hmm. the importance of having that relationship, in essence, with Jesus Christ and, and, and the spiritual battle that, you know, I think sometimes we take for granted, even in our own day, the need to be called into a, a stronger union and a practice on our own part. Very much so. And there's another one of his uh, uh, surviving homilies uh, in which he contrasts Adam and Christ. Mm. And he talks about uh, first the first man, Adam, became a living soul, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. And in that sense, there's, there's this wonderful contrast of the place of man relative to Christ but also on the the power of the incarnation. And he uses the phrase again, uh, uh, the first Adam, the last Adam. The first had a beginning, the last knows no end. The last Adam is indeed the first, as he himself says, I am the first and the last. And that, I think, helps us to see again the remarkable theological vision of St. Peter, but, but also how... In his homilies, he was able to bring together so many of the beautiful teachings of the church that were already there. I mean, people love to attack the church for so-called inventing her teachings. And yet when we read these homilies, we can hear him we can hear someone speaking across the ages. And exactly as we have been covering all these other doctors of the church in, in the early church, we're seeing the, the truths of the church from the very beginning. And, and that's so important, I think, to understanding the church today at a time when, we're, when they're trying to wipe away everything that has gone before. And in Peter, we have somebody who understood that uh, very, very profoundly. And I can quote one other little snippet from one of his homilies, and that was on the Incarnation. And he says, Christ is born that by his birth he might restore our nature. He became a child, was fed, and grew that he might inaugurate the one perfect age to remain forever as he had created it. He supports man that might that man might no longer fall, and the creature he had formed of earth he now makes heavenly. And then he adds that And what he had endowed with a human soul, he now vivifies to become a heavenly spirit. In this way, he says, he fully raised man to God and left him neither sin, nor death, nor travail, nor pain, nor anything earthly with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with the Father in the unity of the Holy Spirit, now and forever, for all the ages of eternity. Amen. This this was said by someone around 450. And it, it could have been said by anyone in the history of the church, but it was said by this saint at this particular moment in time, and we're still meditating on it today. 
sounds as though he is someone who made that journey that Pope Benedict the Sixteenth exhorted us all, reminded us all to make from the journey from the head to the heart. And, yes, and yes. that what a tremendous spiritual guide. I mean, I think that's one of the things that when we talk about the doctors of the church, Matthew, is that as they fought those heresies and helped to establish what we've come to know as dogma and doctrine, that it was born out of that reflection that made that particular journey. It was. And one of the, the, the reasons that we have the doctors of the church is we emulate their holiness we meditate on their writings, but we also try to understand them within their, the context of their, their eras. St. Peter, like so many of the other doctors of the church that we've been covering over the weeks, lived within this very specific historical era. Well, we live in an era uh, that is surprisingly similar. We live in an era of ongoing dissent against church teachings. We live in an era of social chaos. Uh, we live in an era of ongoing paganism. So all the more reason to listen to the words of these doctors of the church. Peter, uh, with his homilies, um, understood his era and did everything he could to change it. And it is a journey that all of us need to make uh, toward that holiness, toward meditating on the truths of the faith, but also doing what we can to change the culture of our times. Final thoughts for today? Yeah. Uh, think of the friendships of doctors of the church and the relationships of doctors of the church with, the, with each other. I think, for example, of the relationship of Peter with Leo I. Here were two doctors of the church who understood each other, were friends, and were, were supporting each other. And this is a, a pattern that we're, we're seeing in the lives of the doctors of the church. Holiness begets holiness, but also holiness tends to be attracted to holiness. And in that too, we can emulate these doctors of the church to encourage each other toward greater holiness, toward deepening our own understanding of the faith and struggling, striving, working to strengthen the faith, to proclaim the faith, and to live the faith. Thank you so much, Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Great to be with you. You've been listening to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. To hear and or to download this program along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to support our efforts. But most of all, we pray that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen.